Welcome to The Jury Is Out, a podcast for trial attorneys who want to sharpen their skills and better serve their clients. Your co-hosts are John Simon, founder of the Simon Law Firm, and St. Louis attorney Eric Veith. Welcome to another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Eric Veith, and I'm here with a special guest, the Honorable Lisa Van Amberg. Hello, Lisa. Hi, Eric. How are you? I'm fine. And you had allowed me permission to call you, Lisa, because we became good friends after we started working together, teaching a course at St. Louis University. So I'll, I'll continue calling you, Lisa, on the podcast. Please do. All right. We're here to talk about your career, which is uh, illustrious. You were a trial attorney, trial judge, appellate judge. You became a trial attorney in the mid-70s. And this has given you a perspective of how things have changed since then, particularly with regard to women and the law, the practice of law that has changed dramatically. I remember all the way back <laughs> to the <laughs> mid-70s. Started law school in 1972 when women were just beginning to be more than one or two, more than nominal numbers in law school. And uh, my class, which graduated in 1975, had, I don't know, maybe 10, 10, 12% women. Very, very interesting times. We were admitted to St. Louis U Law School at a time when many of our male colleagues were coming back from Vietnam, for example, coming there on the GI Bill. Civil rights were, were just heating up in the courts as well as on the streets. But while we were at St. Louis U, from 1972 to 1975, Ruth Bader Ginsburg and the ACLU were litigating actively issues of women's rights in the United States Supreme Court. She had, beginning in the early 70s, begun to slam down just astoundingly quick victories in the Supreme Court for women's rights. And we coincidentally had enrolled in one of St. Louis University Law School's excellent field placement programs. And uh, interestingly, it, it was put together at SLU Law on a grant by the Justice Department to train law students how to litigate these cases on behalf of employees who had been discriminated against on the basis of race, sex, religion, national origin. Later came age discrimination, but we were taught by Justice Department lawyers and EEOC lawyers how to litigate these cases. When we graduated in 75, we were the most inexperienced but knowledgeable lawyers in town on the subject of employment discrimination. I think you said it, when we talked earlier that even though nowadays you'd consider a civil rights cases to be somewhat of a bread and butter for many practices, that you and your group of women attorneys who had trained up in that special program were somewhat of a spectacle in front of many judges. It was kind of a new thing back then. So when we graduated, we decided to start our own firm and litigate these cases as well as represent women in other areas of the law, including domestic relations. There were two of us who went on to litigate civil rights cases the rest of our practicing career. Mary Ann Sade and I. And at the time, 
we were novelty. We started our own law firm downtown in the 705 Olive Building, which is now a beautifully restored building. But at the time, it was a building where a number of lawyers had offices, and we opened our law office there. And we immediately started filing lawsuits in federal court and walking into federal court, setting them for trial, trying them without any trial experience. So we, when we walked into federal court, what we found were, well, let's just say it simply, older white guys, really older white guys, some of them from urban areas, but many of them from, from Franklin, Jefferson County, St. Charles County, the surrounding areas that comprise the Eastern District of Missouri Federal Court. And they did not like this new Title VII law. They, they didn't understand it, weren't used to it. And they were astounded to see these three inexperienced, young, you know, four inexperienced young women come into their courts. Some of them were very courteous. Others were gruff. But what we understood is that we were, we were something of a novelty walking into that federal courthouse. And so we were on our toes, <laughs> trying to do everything correctly, asking for advice from other lawyers in our building, which they freely gave. And it was a path that we took. We did take out loans to start our law firm. The bank around the corner, United Missouri Bank, thought it was really cute that we were starting our own firm. The St. Louis Post-Dispatch put us on their front page. So we were, we were sort of novelties and people, people were, I think, kinder to us than they otherwise would have been because of that. But it was scary at the time, frankly. It was scary to not have litigation experience and to walk into a courthouse where <laughs> there weren't any women judges, there weren't any judges of color in that federal courthouse. Arguing civil rights for women and people of color was difficult and challenging at the time. What led you to become a lawyer at all? What, what inspired you to go to law school? So the civil rights era was brewing when I was in college. I also you know, grew up in New Orleans, Louisiana, and attended public schools in New Orleans until I left for Washington University at the age of 18. New Orleans was in the throes of, of civil rights marches, desegregation. My high school was the first high school desegregated. The whole topic of civil rights was definitely on my mind and my agenda as something I wanted to participate in, even when I came to Washington University. So that was my background. I hadn't, frankly, thought about women's rights until later in, in college and then when I experienced discrimination for the two years I worked out of college before I went to law school. And that's when I began to get not only interested in the subject of sex discrimination, but personally invested at the injustice of it. So I'm glad I worked for those two years I you know, was paid less than my male counterparts. I was harassed sexually by two different bosses. And at the time, I just quit the job and went to a different job. You know, and that's something that Ruth Bader Ginsburg did, did for me personally with her victories in the Supreme Court. She legitimized 
and articulated for women the importance of recognizing when you're being discriminated against, what your rights are, when you are, and that you could do something about it and prevail. And that's what she did for me personally, and I think my partners too. So when we graduated in the mid-70s, as she was slamming down these victories, she and her colleagues at the ACLU, including Catherine Paradis and others, were we were aware of them. We became aware of them learning about Title VII, and we knew what they were doing and what arguments they were making when we graduated from law school. And sometimes your destiny is, is uh, based in the current events that you exist with and the people whose path you walk with. And that's how we landed in civil rights practice, Marianne and I especially. I came out of law school in 81, a little bit after you. And a lot of other things were going on as well, but it might be fun to paint the picture of what the law practice was like for you and your yeah. your, your fellows. We had electric typewriters, carbon paper, and a photocopy machine, but we used carbon paper to draft our pleadings and we had the white out and you know the tape that you use to white out your mistakes on we all could keep keyboard on the typewriter which later came in handy when computers came into effect we also had a baby in our office for a while mary ann's first child she brought to the office a lot of women were bringing children to work if they could because daycare wasn't readily available to everybody even I was lucky. My husband, Al, was a doctor at WashU Medical School. There was a childcare facility available for the children of the staff there. But at the time, you know, there wasn't very good childcare. So you had to talk about how you had to go pick up the kid about quarter to five, you know, having to tell a federal judge that you needed to recess to go get a kid resulted in some snide responses from those judges. You know, well, counsel, if you can't be here on the court's regular hours, then maybe you shouldn't be a lawyer or things like that. That's the kind of thing that we encountered. So don't lose hope, women who are practicing law. You know, right now, things are so much better for women. Even more women managing law firms is so thrilling for me to see, but that was just unheard of back in the mid-70s. What are your take-home, if you had to give a few basic rules to a brand new lawyer about what's important to do right when you're in the courtroom or trying a case? First of all, to understand that the first time you appear in court, both to the judge, to your opposing attorney, to your clients, to their clients, you leave an impression that you are a person of integrity, your word is good, and your command of professionalism and rules of ethics is, is reliable. I think that's very important because once a first impression is formed, it's hard to undo it. So we were very cognizant of that we may not have had the substantive knowledge we needed, but we certainly did not want to leave a bad impression about our credibility and our sincerity. So that's important. 
courtesy to everyone in the courthouse, including the clerks, the court reporter, is extremely important. Don't think, new lawyers, that you can slap something down on a clerk's desk and demand something in a rude way and it not get back to the judge. <laughs> Those things all get back to the judge. And furthermore, it's just not right. So I think some of what new lawyers see either on TV and law shows or sometimes with respect to bad behavior from opposing counsel misleads them into what's important. The other skill that they don't teach you in law school is to learn to tell a story. Even in a motion practice, you're telling the judge something that's akin to a story that's persuasive about why your motion should be granted. But you're always, not I don't mean to suggest a fictional story, but you're presenting the facts and the law in a manner that flows logically and is persuasive. And that always happens when the listener is engaged. And the reason a listener, a judge or a jury or opposing counsel is engaged is because they're interested in what you're saying. You're not being boring. So that's the art of persuasion. Did you find that being out there as a group of young lawyers, you might have developed some of your own style for how to communicate, for instance, or how to get things done that might have been a little different than the traditional ways that other lawyers might have tried cases, for instance, yeah. the way you communicated with the, the court or the jury? Yes, I think that what we knew is what they knew. They knew we were the new kids on the block. We were sincere and we were giving it a good effort and that we were credible. So I think the credibility advantage women had was not discussed. It was a little unspoken. With the judges and with the juries, the way we talked to them was face-to-face, -face, plain speak, without the legalese, because that's what came out of, you know, came out of an inexperienced attorney's mouth. But it worked out for us in terms of credibility. So we spoke in, in plain language to jurors. We looked them in the eye and certainly didn't prance around <laughs> in the courtroom <laughs> like I've seen some experienced lawyers do. It, it worked for us and it was something we were comfortable with. And we knew that they knew we were inexperienced. So that was, you couldn't hide that. If we made a mistake, we, we kind of apologized and went on. It was quite noticeable, the demographics of who was on the bench at the time. Yes. And uh, for that reason, I'm, I'm asking you to comment a bit on the Women Lawyers Association. I think you, you said you were instrumental in its formation. So the Women Lawyers Association was formed by a, a group of us mid-70s female graduates of the law school at St. Louis U., I was a charter member. I, I was never president of the Women Lawyers Association, but my partner, Adrian Anderson, was. Joan Berger was. A lot of these women who later became judges <laughs> were very active in the Women Lawyers Association that was formed in the mid-70s. We had a mission. A very unique mission was to get women on the bench. There were no women federal district court judges 
early on, Anna Forder was appointed by Governor Teasdale on the circuit court in the city of St. Louis, 22nd. And she was the first trial court judge there. Ann Niederlander and Margaret Nolan were the first trial judges in the county. And we began to lobby for women on the bench very effectively, I think. Karen Tokars was very involved in that effort. And she was not afraid to speak truth to power. She still isn't. She was a, a really strong spokesperson for us. And Joan Bray was then a reporter for the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, and she took on the big story of how there were no or few women on the bench, published a series on that very issue, which triggered a lot of activity from the powers that be, and especially the governor of Missouri at the time experienced a lot of pressure. I think that was Governor Ashcroft to put women on the bench. I remember Karen Tokars' story when she spoke to Senator Eagleton about the federal bench. Tom Eagleton said, well, we're not sure that we have enough competent, experienced women lawyers to choose from. And her witty response was, well, we're not asking for that. We're asking for an equal opportunity to put as many incompetent, inexperienced women on the benches. There are incompetent, inexperienced men, which he thought was hysterical. And But it made a point, which I think, you know, is exactly the concept that Ruth Bader Ginsburg argued for, which was equal treatment, just equal treatment of women. And that was the basic concept that, I believe it or not, was unique and, and caught my attention because for me, and I think a lot of women, we always felt like, well, we've got to meet some super high standard to perform, to make progress. And she just brazenly argued before the Supreme Court, no, we just want what the men have. <laughs> and she won a lot of her cases just on that simple equal protection principle. Young lawyers out of law school might not yet have the credibility or the track record to easily settle a case. Yeah. Uh, it seems like uh, who you are has a lot to do with whether someone takes you seriously. Exactly. Can you talk about that a bit? Yes. And it took a long time for us to get to that point. When we graduated law school, we filed a couple of kind of no-brainer sex discrimination cases in federal court. No-brainer, I because the first one we filed was under the Equal Protection Act, which required women and men to be paid equally for substantially equal jobs. Well, our clients were tellers at a bank. It was called Roosevelt Federal Savings and Bank. There were four women tellers who were paid less than their male teller counterparts. And it was a non-jury trial at the time before a federal judge from Southern Missouri and he was skeptical, but he couldn't find a way to rule against us. There was just really no way to rule against us, and he ruled in our favor. So that was our first filed case and our first victory. But from then on, it was a lot of defeats, just because they, they, you know, they didn't understand or care about the law. Frankly, they didn't think that women or people of color were being discriminated against per se. And it was hard to win those cases for a number of years. And it was hard to settle them. But then later on in the early 80s, I would say, is when it, we began to have some success and we began to be able to settle cases. 
We filed a major class action in Missouri in federal court before Judge Scott O. Wright out of Jefferson City uh, on behalf of women, mostly rural women, farm women, who had applied to the highway department for positions in their entry-level jobs to supplement their farm income, just like the men had been doing working for the highway department, supplementing their farm income. They were turned down for these jobs. The highway department even documented why they weren't hired. Because she's a woman, they would write, you know, she can operate machinery, but she's a woman and we don't have bathroom facilities for women. That was the kind of response that we were getting at the time. In a way, I mean, these employers, especially public employers, were not prepared to defend these cases. They were ill-equipped to mount viable defenses. And so we benefited from that reality. We did have a jury trial in that case. We won that case. Hundreds of women have been since hired by the Missouri Highway Department. And the federal judge who handled the case, and it was a jury trial in Jefferson City, told me that thereafter he would stop to talk to these women on the highway. He'd pull over and say, do you know why you're working for the Missouri Highway Department? And he wrote an autobiography and mentioned the case. So it took some time for us to to get a reputation and to be able to settle cases. Actually, Mary Day and I both independently argued our own cases before the U.S. Supreme Court in the mid-'80s, Title VII cases, and prevailed at the Supreme Court. And that's when the cases started to settle. (laughs) And we were able to make a living at that point, I think. But it took over 10 years to get to that point. So you then became a trial judge. You want to talk a little bit about your path to becoming a trial judge? After 27 years of litigating, I began to think that I knew enough about the areas of law and the rules of evidence to be able to rule on them from the other side of the bench. And litigation does take its toll because litigation requires you to work long hours, even into the weekends and Sundays. And if you have a family, that's hard to do. So I decided I'd like to try to become a trial judge. I enjoyed trials. I loved jury trials. It was just so interesting to connect with jurors and witnesses in the courtroom from the other side of the bench. So I applied under the Missouri merit selection process to be a trial judge in the city of St. Louis. And I was very lucky after 27 years of experience, I think the merit board thought I was qualified to put on a on the three-person panel to send to the governor the first time I applied. So I got on that panel and Governor Carnahan appointed me that first effort I applied and that was wonderful. But for nine years, I tried jury trials in the city circuit court and enjoyed every minute of it. When jury trials started to wane, I decided to apply for the Missouri Court of Appeals. And that's a different kind of position, really. It takes you out of the heat of the courtroom, which I miss. I love the interaction in the courtroom, but it also brings you into contact with areas of the law that are very, very important. And Missouri Court of Appeals 
And so we heard all kinds of cases and I learned so many areas of the law there and enjoyed the camaraderie with my fellow judges there for six years. From your perspective as a trial judge, what observations can you offer about what makes an effective trial attorney in the courtroom? An effective trial attorney projects confidence in her argument, gives the trial judge the authority correctly that should govern the judge's decision, the correct authority, has learned to persuade by, as I said, telling a story either to the judge or to the jury of why the ruling should go their way. But from the judge's perspective, I always enjoyed interacting with lawyers who demonstrated respect for the law and for the court and for the jury and could persuade me by framing the facts in a way that fit right into the theory of their case and then applying the law and citing correctly. One of the problems I had as an appellate judge was reading briefs that were just incorrect. You know, the authority was incorrect. It was inapplicable. Trial judges need the lawyers to educate them and appellate judges as well. So we rely on lawyers to give us the straight scoop. And that's what I admired. Could you comment a bit about civility and professionalism and how important it is both in the courtroom and in the appellate court? Yes, you know, as I said, civility and professionalism is what judges notice first. And that's what sticks in their memory about anybody who comes into their court. If a lawyer is uncivil to an unprofessional, it taints the whole practice of law in the courtroom. And judges are put in the position of having to, at least for the benefit of the litigants and the jury, of having to correct it sometimes. But boy, you know, if we encounter it, it sticks in our memory and don't think we don't talk about it with other judges. So this is why it's so important. Now, there are lawyers who have really sharp edges in the courtroom to opposing counsel and even in cross-exam, belittling the witness in cross-exam And I've seen that backfire on them with the jurors. And I've talked to jurors later about lawyers who insult witnesses. There's no person in the courtroom the jury is more empathetic to than the witness testifying because they're scared to death of ever seeing themselves in that seat. And so if they feel that a witness is mistreated by a lawyer, that's going to hurt you. So be cognizant of that when you're in the courtroom. Could you talk a bit about your rise to the appellate position? Were you seeking that actively or did did it just seem to happen or how did that come about? I had to work hard for it. I think I offended the opposing party by beating them <laughs> and getting a multi-million dollar verdict for my client, but that's okay. That party wound up on the Merit Selection Commission and opposed my nomination for a couple of rounds. But I think people have to understand for the appellate positions, they're going to have to apply not just once, but twice, three times, four times, maybe five times. Rejection is hard for people, but when you apply for an appellate position, you have to be prepared to be rejected, rejected, rejected. What could you 
offer as far as what it was like to be a female judge, both a trial judge and an appellate judge? Was it different to be a female judge as opposed to a male judge? I encountered lawyers who who were less tolerant of my rulings, and I felt like those lawyers had a preconceived notion of the role of women and were just opposed to some women being judges. I would hear some sharp-edged remarks from lawyers at a sidebar on a ruling of evidence, and such as, well, judge, I think you need to go back and look at the rules more carefully and study them, or you know, some suggestion that I didn't understand Missouri law sometimes. That happened a little more than I, I would like in the heat of the moment. I'm not sure, you know, and I never did ask my male counterparts if they were dissed by lawyers appearing in front of them, but I think there's some particularly older lawyers who were not happy to see me as their trial judge. What tools do you have where two lawyers are heated in the trial court and they're just, it becomes personal and you're the judge and it's getting uncomfortable probably for everybody? What strategies did you use when that happened? I would call counsel up to the side bar. And in those city circuit court courtrooms, those are pretty large courtrooms, but I would call them to the sidebar. My back would be to the jury. I would turn first to the jury with a smile on my face and they knew what was going on and say, ladies and gentlemen, pardon me, I have to talk to the lawyers for a little while out of your hearing. And they knew exactly what was going on. Often I would call a recess at that point and tell the lawyers that I'm happy to resolve any evidentiary dispute they have, but I won't do it like that in front of the jury and not to do that in front of the jury. Jurors understand when we have to talk about issues of law out of their hearing, because I explained that to them at the beginning of the trial, but they don't understand incivility, and it's not going to help you at all to be characterized that way. And often it is just one of the two attorneys being uncivil. The other attorney is usually trying to look at, looks at me for help, you know, <laughs> frequently, and that's when we call the sidebar. But I don't like for incivility to take place in front of the jury. Don't think that jurors don't make decisions on irrational bases like whether they like you or not. We don't know what they do in there. We don't know what drives their decision making. If they don't like you, you, the attorney, you've got a strike against you. Hopefully they like your client though. But if they don't like your client either and your client is nasty and dismissive on the stand, then good luck. After you practice as an appellate judge for a number of years, what take home can you offer us as far as what the best appellate attorneys seem to have in common? What did they do really well? They write really cogent and persuasive briefs. That's the first and most important thing. Oral argument is the next most important thing, but starting with the brief, the brief is not a memorandum of law on all of the law possibly relevant to the case. <laughs> the brief is a story. Again, it's a story that starts with facts that are framed to fit the theories you're advancing. I'm not saying to lie about the facts, but I'm saying select the facts that fit into your argument 
maybe write your argument first and then write the facts that fit in so that by the time we judges read the fact part of the brief, we kind of know what the result should be from your presentation as you're arguing it. And then when you get to the argument part of the brief, settle on one or two primary authorities for what you're saying. Don't throw mud on the wall with a bunch of cases from other states. Most of us in the state courts are interested in what the state Supreme Court has said or other appellate branches for authority. Of course, the United States Supreme Court and the Eighth Circuit are relevant, but be sure your citations to authority are correct because there again, that's your credibility issue. But we like a nice, sharp, concise brief and argument. It always irritated me and it irritates a lot of my fellow judges to see five or six points on appeal. <laughs> I, I don't know why you need five or six points on appeal. Pick your winners and, and go with those. Pick the threshold issues that determine the outcome of the case. One, two points on appeal, maybe three, but not six. Looking back on your career, it's been a long, fulfilling career from what I hear. What are your thoughts about how the journey has been for you? It's always in retrospect a positive thought about a journey, frankly, like that. It was hard. It was hard at times being an inexperienced trial attorney at first. That was difficult. But the camaraderie that I had with my partners and with other women who were walking into courtrooms at the same time through the Women Lawyers Association was sustaining to us. It was sustaining us through difficult times. And then when we started to have some success, that's when it became very rewarding to see our clients benefit from that success to see discrimination in the workplace, really the whole area of employment discrimination and labor law, which I practiced in, became a major specialty in all of the medium to large size law firms. And the plaintiff's bar always smaller, but still growing. But the whole area of the law became an established and well-known area of the law. And I enjoyed working with attorneys on both sides during the 27 years that I practiced. And many became my friends, you know, opposing attorneys even. And the civility and the professionalism was very rewarding because it's an intensely emotional area of the law on both sides. It's like domestic relations. People's feelings get hurt. A, when they get discriminated against in their minds, and B, when they're accused of discrimination. And many of the attorneys that we worked with were aware of that and were able to set feelings aside and, and work professionally with each other. That's what happens in settlements, too. The lawyers understand the risks of litigating better when they know and trust each other and treat each other civilly, they can focus on the issues that matter to their clients and not the interpersonal nastiness that sometimes surfaces. I'm thinking back to an earlier topic, the Women's Lawyers Association. You were a founding member. You might have been paving your own path to become a judge later on. I didn't realize it at the time, but at the time that we formed the Women Lawyers Association, we women felt that we had special challenges 
due to our gender in the practice of law, which was a male-dominated profession at the time, we felt that we needed some support to navigate our way through that. And we felt that forming our own association, and particularly for advocating for women on the bench, would be more effective than just individual petitions to the governor to appoint this or that female to the bench. And that's true of a lot of, you know, civil rights movements. Once you form collectively to achieve power, you're going to be more successful. So we felt very strongly we needed to form this association and to provide each other with resources. Actually, the first thing we did was we invited to come speak to us successful women lawyers who had formed their own firms from other cities. We invited Margaret Nolan and Ann Niederlander to come talk to us about forming our own firms. That was the kind of thing we did at first. But then later, we began to lobby the Merit Selection Commissions and the governor for appointment of women to the bench. And we began to lobby as an organization, and we had more voice that way. So we understood from our male colleagues, their, you know, hurt feelings, I suppose, but it didn't matter because we knew that we had to do this for advancement of women, especially on the bench. And so we did. And it's amazing what the Women Lawyers Association has become. I'm really proud of it. They still work to get women on the bench, but they have a broader agenda, uh, a very good broad agenda still, and are well accepted into the community of lawyers. If you were approached today by a young woman who was interested in going to law school, do you have some advice that you in the past offered or that you would offer today to that person? I would say that they might want to consider public interest law, service in public interest law endeavors, possibly to find help with tuition, but also to immerse themselves in the mechanics of practicing law with an observable reward. And in public interest law, for example, the area of housing law, working with real people with real life problems that are existential problems, especially in this pandemic, for example, housing law is going to become very interesting. And so consider public interest law. And there are field placement programs, both at Washington University, at all law schools, I believe now, that can set you into that setting and give you a taste of it. So consider that. Then maybe move on later to private practice in a larger firm where you're paid more. But the experience you would get initially in public service or public interest is invaluable. We've covered, what, 45 years of experience and <laughs> social change. And what else comes to your mind? It's interesting because you walk this path, you know you're on a career trajectory of some sort. So my advice is try to stop along the path and think positively about what you are accomplishing not only for your clients, not only for the law, 
but also for your own democracy. What we have here in the United States is so precious, the Constitution being the framework for our justice system. Think about that and think what role you as an attorney play in the history of this country. We are in a very impactful time, I think, for this democracy. And as lawyers, we have a lot to contribute. So think about where you are on the path. Stop and enjoy the collegiality that the law gives you, your colleagues, and enjoy that. But also pat yourself on the back for the important role you play in the bigger picture of this democracy. Thank you for joining us. This has been a great conversation. I've really enjoyed it. I did too. Thank you for inviting me, Eric. So this has been another episode of The Jury Is Out. We'll be back with another episode next time. This is Eric Beef. Thank you for joining us. The Jury Is Out is brought to you by the Simon Law Firm. Share your comments with John and Eric at comments at thejuryisout.law and tune in to the other podcasts in the Simon Law Firm library, including Heels in the Courtroom, a lively look at life and law from a female point of view, and Results Don't Lie, a legal drama podcast about the nation's first opioid overprescription medical malpractice case. Subscribe today because the best lawyers never stop learning.